0: Hey folks, welcome to the You Had Me at Curia podcast, where we tackle all of the curated films on the Curia platform. In this episode, we're doing some staff picks, the folks behind the scenes at Curia have picked some of their favorite films of the collections, as have I, your host, Ricky Camilleri. We've got seven collections to go through. They are Beginner's Luck, Gothic Horror, Bloodlust, It's All Connected, Moody Blues, Fables and Fairy Tales, and of course, as always, The Circuit and our Shorts Collection. First up, October's collection of beginner's luck movies, which are uh, first-time filmmakers, uh, mostly filmmakers that you've heard of now that have gone on to pretty great success. Joining us is Jared Neese. And um, the movies uh, in this, you have uh, Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming, James Gray's Little Odessa, Xavier Dolan's I Killed My Mother, uh, Andre Zevgenitz's The Return, Antonio Campos's After School, Steve McQueen's Hunger, Brady Corbett's The Childhood of a Leader, david robert mitchell's myth of the american sleepover and uh barry jenkins's medicine for melancholy and you chose uh medicine for melancholy
1: this is a little embarrassing but i i kind of forgot your name
0: i don't know if
2: we ever got there
1: yeah i I know we didn't we were pretty drunk i'm i'm micah angela nice to meet you angela
2: Like the city just pisses
0: you off. Nah, I love this city. I hate this city, but I love this city.
1: San Francisco's beautiful. You shouldn't have to be upper middle class to be a part of that.
0: So what is it about uh, Jenkins' 2008 Medicine for Melancholy that uh, holds so dear for you?
3: For the past uh, two decades, I worked at South by Southwest. Um, and, you know, this film was one of a, you know, a South by Southwest kind of discovery uh, in in the whole vein of mumblecore, where a lot of that stuff took off, um, and so this was just you know it was you know this one of the best in the, the mumblecore uh, vein. Um, you know, me personally, I had a lot of connection with the film with my my wife uh, being from San Francisco and, and visiting there and 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 kind of being able to feel for the city and and a feel for what what the film is about um, and. And also just, you know, you know, Barry being kind of part of the world, uh, you know, the Florida State, you know, film school with the uh, Adele Romansky and, um, you know, a lot of the other, you know, people that kind of came up with them. It was just this whole kind of crew. And, you know, for this film itself was just, it's such a, there's not much going on in the film, you know, obviously, but it's just so well done. Um, he gets these really amazing performances. He, you know. Like he said, it, you know, he made it for fifteen thousand dollars, which is amazing. Like I don't think you can probably get a, a meal in San Francisco for fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> these days. Um, but you know, it was just, uh, you know, great music choices. Just you know, just the 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 script is great. The just you know, th- there's so many little moments in the film, mm. you know, and it's just. Uh, it really connected with me. And uh, obviously we were thrilled at South by to be able to, you know, this to promote, you know, kind of start Barry's career and uh, yeah. So this was a really special one for me.
0: Yeah. And I mean that you started his career before anybody knew he was going to go on to be, you know, Barry Jenkins and in, quotes, who we, who we know of him to be now. Yeah, Well, that's the,
3: that's the, you know, that's the, you know, best case scenario for film festivals is, you know, it's always fun to be able to play the big studio films and, and, and all that and have the famous people. And, you know, that, that's great, you know, but as a festival programmer, as a programmer in general, you're, you're, you're aiming for discovery. You you want to, you know, you know, have these filmmakers connect with their audiences and, um, you know, for, you know, being able to showcase you know, a film like Medicine for Melancholy and, and promote you know barry jenkins and being able to like you know put him up in this pedestal and be like this is you know we you know this is approved of by us or whatever you mm-hmm. want to say mm-hmm. and then other people agree and then you're just like okay you know then you just kind of like let him go from there You like you give them the platform and you hope that they do their what they can with it and so um you know barry's a super smart guy um he's an amazing filmmaker he's a film lover he's uh he's just a good dude you know in general so yeah, it's always good to see good things happen to good people and uh and yeah this is a special film
0: um for my uh pick for the most resonant film in the beginner's luck uh section for me i mean i honestly could have gone with a few i could have gone with buffalo 66 or little odessa or even changed everything for the return which i watched this morning and kind of was floored by uh but i chose heart eight
4: if i would give you 50 dollars what would you do with it I'd eat. How long can you eat, how long can you live on $50? I don't know. I would bet not very long.
0: I think I saw Boogie Nights when I was in seventh or eighth grade and it blew my mind. And, you know, the opening shot of Boogie Nights was like, Oh, look, this is how people make movies and they make like very (laughs) specific and clear decisions to announce themselves and announce ideas in movies. And then going back and watching heart eight, because he doesn't have the budget that he has to be so cinematic with the others, he focuses very heavily on the nuances of the writing. And it's so fun. It's such a fun movie to listen to the way people specifically stammer, the way that they choose words, the way that they pause. It's all very mammoth influenced, uh, Mm. but still has that, that PTA flair. And it's one of those things that anytime I've watched it, it always makes me want to go write and almost try to write like the movie a little bit, but you can't because he's Paul Thomas Anderson and he's, the best he's one of the best at it you know it's like when people listen to quentin tarantino and think that they could go right quentin like go right and then it's just never gonna be that um well
3: it's always that's always what we used to say i mean you know watching things from it's like making the copy of something that you love it it never works no it's it you know it's just like it's like oh it's like there's no soul to it it's very surface and you know the reason these films are special is because they have it's their this originality and you know they're you know, just making the right choices because they're great storytellers. <laughs> and You know, there's, they have tremendous performances by an amazing cast and, uh, you know, like, you know, heart eight, you know, for me, it's just like a really great, uh, audition tape for Boogie Nights, yeah, which is, uh, you know, just one year after this, uh, which came out and it's such a good film. I mean, I, I saw it a long time ago and I, I was able to rewatch it as well. And, uh, It's just such a good film. It holds up so well, too.
0: Yeah, it really does. It's a movie that I go back to, I think, every every year, every other year. Uh, At this point, I've, like, a number of paul thomas anderson's films i've i've seen them so much that it, it's a it's a hard decision to go back and watch again because i've just seen it so many times <laughs> like every beat is kind of memorized in the back of my head but one thing i always liked about this film was that the the impetus or like the original conception was that he was watching like bob le flambior and he thought what about what if, what happens to this guy after he retires like what mm-hmm. what sort of what sort of debts does he have to does he have to pay back and that becomes the um the impetus of the uh, of the movie um, is uh, paying back debts although you don't know what those debts are or, or, or what they're going to end up being and um, yeah it's a film that, that I love and I, I really love this section this beginner's luck section there's so many great great films in it and you can hear us talk about it for um, much longer on the other podcast we won't we won't do it again right now
2: A woman whose desires transcend reality the
5: mysterious powers of black magic. These you will explore.
0: Now what is it you need?
5: You got some dried blood or a bath in the house? Ah!
0: Ah! Ah! The raven will take you careening through the darkest of dangers, ah! into the ominous mystery of a master magician's evil castle. Quoth the
4: Raven,
0: nevermore. Never Jared, before we, you know, get into what's so special about the the Gothic horror section, I'll just briefly list the movies, and then you can tell me the specific movies in there that are uh, special. We have uh, the Tome of Legia, Black Sabbath, Mask of the Red Death, The Raven, The Haunted Palace, The Premature Burial, Tower of London, Tales of Terror, Pit and Pendulum, and House of Usher tell me what is specifically special. I think about 10 of those movies on this list.
3: Yeah. Well, that's uh, pretty much the entire, uh, the way that they like to describe it is the Corman Poe cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, uh, a company, you know, in, in the late fifties, American international pictures, formerly American releasing company. Uh, they were kind of like, uh, you know, they would make films for, for, for young kids, uh, usually drive-in movies, uh, you know things where there was a monster or you know where's like like you know things that there were b movies monster b movie may, may, usually aimed at driving audiences um and then uh in the 60s they you know they came to corman and uh corman put together this list of films and he was really a, you know he's a fan of uh of of uh these stories but he was also a fan because they were all in the public domain too so he was able to get these uh these Edgar Allan Poe stories, and and he thought that you know the kids would connect to the movies because you know they always had to they all had to read Edgar Allan Poe in school, and so it was like what what better way to make this connection than to make all these uh, Edgar Allan Poe short stories into these films? Uh, you know, uh, I guess there was initial hesitation, uh, you know, because they were like, "Where's the monster?" and then you know, Corman kind of reassured them that the house, you know, for for a lot of their films, like for the the first film house of usher like the house was the monster um and a lot of these are maybe not your typical you know um monster films uh but there's a lot of uh horror and comedy and you know uh creepiness to of them um mostly all of them are edgar Allan poe stories that there's one h.p lovecraft mm-hmm. uh, story
0: the haunted palace um,
3: the haunted palace yeah. yeah and um you know one of their uh uh, their publicity department uh, at American National Pictures, uh, they said that, you know, the formula for success, which is obviously disgusting and incorrect, but this is what they, uh, they thought that they called the Peter Pan syndrome. And, you know, A is like a younger child will want to watch anything an older child will watch. Uh, an older child will, watch, will not watch anything a younger child will watch. A girl will watch anything a boy will watch. And a boy will not watch anything a girl will watch. And so therefore they came up with these films, which are, you know, uh, you know, had a lot of monsters and, and, uh, horror and comedy and, uh, you know, these big kind of set pieces and, uh, but yeah, they, they kind of tackled these from, you know, 1960 to 1965, this five year run. Um, you know, it started with, uh, the house of Usher and it kind of ended with the, the tomb of, uh. Legea, Legia. I don't know how to pronounce that, but I'm sure somebody will. Uh,
0: yeah, I don't think I pronounce but, it right correctly either.
3: You no, know, so I'm sure someone somewhere pronounced it correctly. Someone can correct uh, this. Yeah, there was a total of eight film, mostly starring Vincent Price, which is a you know huge part of these films. Uh, uh, half of them written by Richard Matheson, the other were written by Charles Beaumont, and then uh, all directed by Roger Corman. You know, the Schlockmeister kind of turned a- auteur here uh, at the end of it. He, he kind of you know, you, you kind of saw his growth in these films too. And he, he mixed up the cast, he mixed up the, the crew. He didn't want them all to be the exact same. So he did mix and match kind of people. So they, they had a different kind of feel and vibe to him. Some are comedy, some are a little bit more, you know, scarier. But uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting being able to see them all in one place too. Uh, You know, usually you can find one here or there, you know, you can on another streaming service or, you know, you can, you know, maybe there's an old DVD you found or something like that. But it's you don't rarely see them all in one place at one time. So, you know, go ahead and dedicate a good, uh, you know, eight to 12 hours of your life and, and experience this whole gothic horror collection.
0: Where did you guys come up with the idea to program this entire collection? Because as you said, it's sometimes you can see some of them on some collection, on some streaming sites, and some on others. But how did you guys go about capturing all of them, and who had the idea?
3: Um, you know, I think the, the just the way we kind of do everything is uh, what's available, and so we, you know, we, you know, this was mainly MGM uh, had all these films and they were available, and we're like, okay, well, this is kind of amazing, and you know, Kino had some other films like Black Sunday and Nosferatu uh in the cabinet of dr caligari mm-hmm. um and so they they kind of fit into the gothic horror frame so it was it was mainly you know mgm had them all available at this point in time and you know we thought october was a great way to kind of roll them out especially with uh you know halloween and everything and uh yeah we're we're excited and i'm excited to kind of watch them all again too it's a
0: so you've seen all of them
3: uh adventure one put one time or the other absolutely uh i had to rewatch. Incredible. Uh, I, I, I rewatched Fall of the House of Usher um, because we do, because we have them now, you know, on the back end of our servers. It's hard to find a lot of them um, to, to rewatch. So it will be cool to be able to have them all on Curia and just be able to p- press play and watch them all in one place.
0: I'm planning to uh, get into some of these once October hits and I can start officially celebrating Halloween. That's when I'll, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's when I'll jump into these. I'm curious about Lovecraft. And I think, um, I'm really excited in this collection for the Mario Bava films, uh, black Absolutely. Sabbath and, uh, and, and black Sunday. I love Mario Bava. I, you know, he's not necessarily considered a, um, Giallo Giallo. Thank you.
3: Yeah, no, he wasn't a Giallo, but it was, it was, uh, you know, this was the, you know, the US's kind of uh, answer to, to the, you know, Giallo or, or the hammer, uh, hammer pictures from the UK. Um, you know, so this this was uh, kind of their reactionary uh, take on on that on, the, on that genre.
0: Apparently, uh, I read uh, in Glenn Kenny's uh, book about the making of Goodfellas that um, mm. Scorsese was largely influenced by Mario Bava, and like a lot of that sort of like blood red lighting at the beginning of Goodfellas when they opened the trunk mm. it was um, like a di- the direct reference for everybody was Mario Bava. Um, which I think is so cool because uh, you don't necessarily think of, uh, always think of Martin Scorsese as sitting down to watch um, giallo horror films, but uh, he probably was because they're also beautifully shot. and, lit and no, colorful. Yeah,
3: that, If anybody, if, if, I, mean, I think he's seen every film, right?
0: Yeah. That's Especially every, every movie ever made.
3: <laughs> yeah. He's got it all cataloged in his brain somewhere.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. He does. Um and what made you guys think of a uh, uh, of gothic horror? Would like did gothic horror come before finding out that um, the Corman films were available, or was it like, oh, there's all these Corman films? No. Let's make a gothic horror section.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely you know it, there was never any um, you know the way we do it is we don't have the collections in mind before we see what's available, right. and so because we don't want to have to pigeonhole films into collections, like we want to have the best films, and then how do we make those best films into collections? And so obviously it started with the, you know, obviously, you know, the, the foundation is the the Corman-Poe cycle, but then it's like, okay, what else is available? And so Black Sunday, Nosferatu, you know, th- those things were just like, okay, we can add these into the collection because, it, you know, it's not only the Corman-Poe the cycle, the majority of them are, um, but yeah, so it was, it's, you know, it's a fun way to, to make things it's, uh, instead of the other way around.
5: Come closer, please. I've something to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? This is Black Sabbath.
0: Up next in our uh, staff picks collection is the It's All Connected collection for uh october and we're joined by uh ithia Riaza Perez. uh ithia uh tell us a little bit about what you do at at curia and then we're going to list all these movies for people to watch and we're going to talk about what you selected as your favorite and what i selected as my favorite or not favorite but ones that have the most meaning for us
2: perfect um i started curia almost a year ago now and yeah, i'm manager of acquisitions so with the help of the team we chose hand curated uh these movies to make the to make them in these collections um and also i've been working a lot with the short film short stories collections all about around 80 short films that we have right now and you know i it was really great to be able to hand pick and watch all these great uh, short films and make them into a great collection. And yeah, the one the collection we'll be talking about today, it's it's all connected. Um, and it's, you know, all these different movies that are, all connected in in a way with the storyline, the lives of the characters are intertwined, and the actions affect each other in a way. And um, it's really a collection that stands out and like presents like the film term of hyperlink cinema. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have just great, great directors in in this list. Like, for for example, the Doples Brothers with Jeff, who lives at home. uh, Jean-Marc Vallée with Café de Flore. And then, you know, we have two from Alejandro Néritu, Babel, and um, Amores Perros, which, you know, both are part of his, like, trilogy of hyperlink cinema with 21 Grams. And uh, it's just been, like, an amazing way to see how Alejandro has you know mastered this technique of hyperlink cinema with these three films um you know starting with you know Amores Perros and then 21 Grands and then like Babel which is one of my favorites of his
1: in the beginning all the lord's people from all parts of the world spoke one language nothing they proposed was impossible for them spirit of man could accomplish the lord said let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech i need to call my embassy
2: where are you where are we?
1: i don't know I, I don't
2: i don't know the shooting of an american tourist has sparked an international incident
1: it's all over the news everybody is paying attention We're doing everything we can
2: uh it's just you know you can see how his technique has just evolved and he really knows how to make the the term just feel very alive um with with Babel for a hundred percent. Like it's just one of my favorite because you get to have four different stories in four different countries. And so it's just, just really wild to think that it's just, just all connected but why? with one simple like meaning, you know?
0: Yeah, I want to get to that in in just a second. But uh, very, you know, you mentioned a, a few of the movies, but some of the other ones are uh, Gamora, which uh, mm-hmm. is my pick. We'll talk about that in a second. Happy Endings with Lisa Kudrow, Steve Coogan, mm-hmm. Lantana, uh, The Red Violin with Samuel Jackson playing by and playing by heart with uh angelina jolie sean connery and so, jillian yeah. anderson uh it, it, it's an incredible collection of movies like you said about this sort of like hyper lengthy the the this 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 multi-layered and like uh, multi-narrative strand cinema and you know one of the things about rewatching Babel that i i i loved is that the central mystery in question of the movie mm. is what you come in and out of is just how are these people connected
2: yeah exactly. right
0: to like to the it's such a that's such a tight wire mm-hmm. to base to like to base a movie on and to hope that every person who's watching it is going to be able to sit with it for 2 hours to find out yeah. how they're connected you know do you remember the first time you saw the film
2: yeah i think it was in college because yeah I mean I'm 24 and this came out I think in like 2006 so mm-hmm. I was very young when that came out um so I didn't watch that obviously but I think yeah I was in like in, in college because I think we did have uh a lesson in like my one of my one-on-one classes like beginner film about just what the you know the definition of hyperlink cinema was and um we we touched on Babel a bit and it's just sometimes I just think about it and it's, it's crazy just to think that it all kind of started because of the siblings rivalry and like jealousy that like the, the, one of the siblings have, has with the other, you know, that's kind of like where the story you know starts to evolve, like evolve and, you know, everything happens just because one of the brothers is a bit jealous that the other one is better at something rather than he is. And, um, and then just like, I don't know how much we can get into like, like, explain the storyline of the movie but it's just crazy just it's all, all about miscommunication as well from what i like remember from the movie it's just mm-hmm. everything can be solved very easily if someone would just communicate but obviously yes. as Alejandro does best it's like nope <laughs> we're gonna you know we're gonna hyperlink everything in a different way and
0: uh well it's just this, yeah. this idea that like for all of our abilities to connect and to be a a globalized like you Mm -hmm. know to be globalized we are still subject to human foibles and to an inability to like have uh genuine and honest communication with each other because we're all hiding those 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 foibles and and faults leading to these tragedies Mm -hmm. um and it's such a when you get when you get to like how these things are connected and i won't say how they're it's so simple yeah you know it's not like a It doesn't become like these, 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 like where something like Crash, Paul Haggis's Crash, Mm -hmm. the connections are very melodramatic. And this, the connections are not melodramatic at Mm -hmm. all. They're very small, yeah, yeah. Humongous effects.
2: I also like it's you empathize so much with all all the characters in it, and it and you get so like emotionally in with them, and you feel for them too, and and like. But at the same time, you're also feeling for other three or four characters throughout the whole story, so it's it's an intense watch, I, I my opinion. Like, also like the Rodrigo, the cinematographer, just does an amazing job. I think in this movie because you know you do have four different countries with four different you know landscapes and you know from like the Ch- Japan storyline, like Tokyo, to then just to go cut to Morocco, <laughs> you know and you get the the emotion from both places, just from the St. Toffrey as well, which is crazy.
0: Is there a, and and this, this may be way off base, but being someone from Spain who now lives in the United Mm -hmm. States, is there a part of you that relates or has a relationship with this movie as, as an immigrant or someone who, who has lived in different parts of the globe and, and feels those kinds of connections through borders?
2: I I do agree with like the the language barrier is something that a lot of, you know, you struggle with, you know, trying to communicate. Really, Um, I moved to to the United States, not really knowing because I moved when I was young for four years in New Jersey. And I started second grade When you start second grade, you're still kind of learning Spanish. So I was still learning Spanish while I was learning English. So um, but that's just, you know, it makes you think that there's other ways to communicate as well. And, you know, you can express yourself in a different way and people are gonna understand you. So, you know, the the Japanese storyline too, just because the main character is deaf, like that also, you know, she has she has struggling there because she can't really communicate and it's hard. And um, it's that storyline for me, the Japanese was very, very, um, it's very deep and intense, I think. Um, because, you know, she can't really communicate. Um, and and then the, the Mexican border, it's just, it's it's hard because, you know, the nanny chose to do that. No, she chose to leave the United States with two kids, knowing that, you know, she doesn't really have papers. So that's also, like, crazy. And then, obviously, going in a car with the drunk nephew, which is just a bad idea. Um, it's just... I'll, I'll, yeah, Alejandro's is just such such a wicked director. Yeah, uh, so he does just a magnificent job, and and everything he does, and you know these hyperlinked cinema movies, all of the, these movies that he has, they're just they're just great.
0: My only question for 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 Babel is why is Brad Pitt made up to look like an older man? Yeah. <laughs> he does look really like a lot of wrinkles right yeah, yeah so a lot of yeah. wrinkles where, but like in close-ups you can also see because he's not playing like an elderly man where the yeah. makeup like kind of makes sense he's playing someone that's like 10 years older that's
2: true he, you know, he <laughs> also you like... also see he has like two young kids too so it doesn't make sense
0: <laughs> yeah and so like like I, I could see maybe if they like wrote an original like the original version of the script was a character that age mm-hmm. but like you could very easily just change it to Brad Pitt's age at the time because he's two young kids. Cate Blanchett is the same age as him. I mean, yeah.
2: And it's funny about the Brad Pitt storyline. Just the, the bus with all these tourists um, and how the men, in my opinion, are very like the way they're, he portrayed them is that they're really accustomed to having their own way and then when they find themselves off in this small town in morocco and when no one really cares who they are and like the power they have kind of thing and they're like stuck there and they just don't really care that someone has been shot you know that that could be them to be honest and it's just like they want to at the end they leave them stranded there was just you know that's that's also crazy you know how sometimes people just think about themselves at all and don't really care about anyone else. So <laughs> that was so right. It, you know, it's really short in the movie. Like, but that meaning really comes out.
0: Um, the the film that I ch- chose for mm-hmm. "It's All Connected" is uh, Matteo Garone's uh, "Gamora."
1: In Naples, one of the oldest cities in Italy. There's a war raging in the streets.
3: nemico. hai guardato
1: Because one organization, the Camorra, has corrupted all levels of society. No. 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 No one is safe. No one is spared. And everyone, from the youngest boy to the oldest man, knows they control everything and respect nothing.
0: Sort of about the sort of globalized connections of following the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, and all of its tentacles that are stemming from organized crime in this area in Italy. And you see the sort of like upfront battles for, for turf where people are getting killed. You see how it extends to the fashion industry Mm -hmm. in, in, in Milan and you know how a celebrity is going to be wearing a a fancy dress that's financed by, (laughs) by, by these, uh, by these gangsters, by organized crime. And I've always loved this film because it comes from this period of time 2008, 2006 to mm-hmm. you know where people there were a lot of these it's all connected movies being yeah. made but no one had really for some reason decided to attack organized crime with it. The yeah. Wire was doing it on television and talking about how like um organized crime in Baltimore had its tentacles in all these different area institutions in in Baltimore but Gomorrah was the kind of the first to really do it in a in a in a criminal mm-hmm. landscape. And I always loved it for that. film then on top of that there's just amazing surreal imagery inside of it yet filmed with like a documentarian's eyes
2: it's crazy it's also based on a true story so (laughs) all these characters are are real (laughs) they're real people so that just it's also like crazy to think about
0: well like the two the the two boys in their underwear shooting guns like on the the side of the water the guy inside the the tanning booth who who gets killed i mean those are images out of a horror movie and like you said they're based on a true story and they're 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 in this movie and i've i've always loved gamora they made a tv show of it later that i i haven't really checked out but it was a hugely influential movie at the time it felt like
2: yeah no i mean it, it did really like internationally as well you know into like can and won the can grand prize like prize and you know it, it did it was really like a, a good like it's because it's very violent as well and it's based on stories yeah. so people <laughs> love those violence yeah, that is true yeah. <laughs> and also violence. italian violence i think also <laughs> in general yeah.
0: that is true that yeah. is true A couple other movies that I think we should just highlight really, really fast, even though we said them already, is uh, if you like Babel, Mm Amaros Paros is on Mm -hmm. here, which is uh, Iñárritu's other other film, one of his other films in the trilogy. Also, uh, Happy Endings with Lisa Kudrow is an extremely funny movie. I recommend that. Jeff who lives at home is like, is a, is a, is a great Duplass brothers movie. And I actually haven't seen Cafe du Flore, but I want to say, because I, I like Jean-Marc Vallée. I think he's a, I think he's no, a he's great. great director. He's,
2: he's, he's different. I think that like, cause he's also like Canadian too. So mm. he's you know, not straight, just French. So I don't know. Yeah. He's, he's great. I mean, there's just great, great directors all over this. Um, and then they're all different too. Cause that's the thing that I love about these collections is that, you have fun. You have comedy, but then you have like very violent, and you have very dramatic, and it's all just from the same like you know kind of like emotion and like feeling that's all connected. So you can have different genres, but at the same time, it just gives you the same same emotion. So it's it's really cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Do you believe in soulmates? I like the concept
1: that someone, somewhere, is meant to be with you forever.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, you know, on top of you know working on the the programming and the curation of the features with everybody else on the team, which I, I, I hear is very much a team effort, you yes. also work specifically on the short films, right? Yes, yes.
2: Yeah. So, you know, our our investor has just loved short films, and he always mentions that when he goes to all the festivals, he he really just tries to see more short films than actual movies. <laughs> so when we started, you know, with the idea of Curia, he really wanted to highlight the short films. And it's it's it, it makes sense because when you go to all these other streaming platforms, you don't really see the shorts just highlighted like really like easy to find. You kind of have to scroll all the way down or the way to the right. And then that's where they are. And um, that's something that we wanted to change. Like, you know, short stories is one of our permanent collections. So it's always going to live on on the streaming platform. And it's just really easy to find. We have about like 80 short films on it. And, you know, more are going to be added throughout, throughout each month. And, you know, we, we try really, Hard to highlight all of them through social media as well. We, I'm very proud that we have a lot of filmmaker, f- female filmmakers in it too. That mm-hmm. that makes me very happy because, you know, short films, it's it's such a unique world because um, you have all of these thousands and thousands of festivals all around the world just dedicated to short films. Um, so it, it's for sure a business and. The really fun part about it was just really just looking at each type of genre and like handpicking which ones we we thought were great out of all of them. So you're, you're going to have a mix of, you know, drama, comedy, satire, like um, horror, just everything together. And they're all just great. There's so much like diversity in them and it's all international as well. You're going to have like French, Spanish, um, Arab, like everything, just uh, all, all these different kinds. And, you know, one of my favorite is Maradona's Legs, um, directed by Firas Curie. Um, it talks about. So first of all, I'm just I just love soccer, like football. I just love football and um, European soccer. And when I saw this, <laughs> yes, I have to. Uh, when I saw this short film, I, I just instantly fell in love with it because it's um, during the nineteen ninety World Cup in Italy, and it's about these two young Palestinian boys who are looking for literally like Maradona's legs missing like sticker in like this like sticker book. Um, and you know how I don't know if it's like a it's I think it's very just like European like international thing just to have like a book of all of all stickers of your famous like players kind of thing. Um, and in order for them. To win this prize, which is a free Atari, I don't know if you know what like Atari is. It's like a game console thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know an Atari, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and in order to win the Atari, they need to complete the whole entire sticker book, and the the last one they need is Marlon's legs. Literally, just a sticker of like his legs. <laughs> um, so that's just like just the journey. Of these two little boys, they're really young. They look like six or seven. Go to just find. Um, these legs and you know they're in Palestine and they're the country they're like representing throughout the whole um short film is Brazil which is uh really cool um which is different and you know the the cinematographer Cristiano also like captures like a tale atmosphere with his like camera angles and like the decor and like um it really gives you the vibe that's 1990s <laughs> and it's also a co-production cool with and germany and you know it's the, the the child actors are just outstanding and you know it it really just how it, it tells like how two kids are just you know just big fans just like how the big fan hour of Maradona's and they'll do anything just to find that, cr- that sticker and like complete the booklet. So, so yeah, it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. It's only 23 minutes, so everyone should watch.
0: <laughs> you have a much uh, smarter pick than me and much more glo- <laughs> uh, like globally aware mm-hmm. pick than me. <laughs> my, my pick was uh, Marvin's never had mm. coffee before. It's one which of my is favorites. Eight minutes. And it's about a, <laughs> beardo who's never had coffee before <laughs> and he's sitting and in and, and all of his work zoom meetings everybody yes. talks about coffee and he he can't participate and i don't really want to give much away because it's only eight minutes so yeah. like marvin marvin the the you know the summary is marvin wexler has his first cup of coffee ever and desperately wants to talk to someone about it
4: i and yeah. um yeah I there's s-
0: the beardo is adorable oh, i yeah. just have to say he's just like an adorable <laughs> An adorable human being that's extremely well cast. I can't imagine this was written without him in mind or just like constructed around his personality.
2: No, it's it's hilarious, first of all. Like it's eight minutes and I laughed out loud for sure. <laughs> and it's, you know, you also have like kind of the pandemic in it too. So it it, it hits home for a lot of people because you know, they're doing like Zoom meetings and the first thing they talk about is just like the coffee and all that and how he tries to communicate that to the group too is just um hilarious and you know the the director uh Andrew Carter it just did an amazing an amazing job and he's really talented he's really you know happy how the the short did because it did really well same mm-hmm. with Maradona it's like Maradona's legs um premiered in Palm Springs actually so it had its world premiere in the U.S. so and and it's you know forum with subtitles. so it's it's great accomplishment as well
5: hello hey it's your co-worker michael a bunch of us are going out for coffee later Do you want to join us oh my god yes yes a thousand times yes
0: hello oh sorry wrong number okay next up uh we have a i love all the collections but i uh really love this collection this is the bloodlust collection which is perfect for uh the month of Halloween and um, the movies in this collection are uh, "We Are What We Are" from 2011, "The Midnight Meat Train" from 2008, "The Descent" from 2006, "The Keep," which I have to say is a is is a huge find and really a really hard one to watch Not watch but r- hard one to find for a while on streaming services. So this is a special appearance. "Blackula" from 1972, "Requiem for a Vampire" from 1971, uh, and the one that started it all. Nosferatu from 1922. And we're joined to talk about two of our favorites uh, from this collection. We're joined by Jordan Jacinto. Jordan, thanks so much for being here. How are you?
5: I'm well, Ricky. Thank you so much for having me. Uh,
0: and now, Jordan, you're uh, one of the members of the team at Curia. So tell me uh, you know, a little bit about what you do there and about your relationship to movies, how it all started for you.
5: Definitely. Yeah. So I work in content management for Curious. So we get a list of these titles from various providers and uh, we reach out to them and make sure that we have the deliveries on time. So for example, this Friday is when we publish this bloodlust collection. So right now it's sort of crunch time making sure we have all of the correct wallpaper and thumbnails, trailers, captions, all that good stuff. And outside of here, I'm a filmmaker myself. I wrote and directed a short film called The Dishwasher that premiered on HBO in March, 2020. And I've known the folks here at Curio for a while. So it was sort of a organic, um, you know, working experience to bring me in. So I'm really happy to be here and really excited to talk about uh, some of these titles in the Spudlust collection today.
0: So you're a filmmaker yourself so you you love movies. When did when did that begin for you your love of movies?
5: Uh probably, you know, I I always wanted to be a writer and every time I went to write what I thought would turn out to be a piece of fiction, you know, like a novella or a book, um it sort of took on a screenplay format before I even knew how to construct a screenplay. Um I don't know if that's the way my brain works or or you know various other things growing up watching films, uh, but it, it started to take on a more visual format. And then once I actually discovered screenwriting software um and made the conscious effort to sort of seek out more obscure films or art house films that weren't necessarily playing in the local theater. You know, the, the main it was like a big AMC theater near near my neighborhood growing up. So uh, probably junior high school into high school, and then I went to Chapman University in Orange, California for screenwriting and acting.
0: So we're going to be talking about the Bloodlust collection, which uh, I listed the movies beforehand. And a little background about about this conversation about the Bloodlust collection is uh, myself and the members of the Curio team are emailing back and forth about what movies we're going to talk about on this podcast. And when it came to Bloodlust, I said, I'm talking about the The Keep, but someone needs to talk about The Descent. Now, for most people, they would say, why The Descent over Nosferatu or over Blackula? Definitely movies with more historical precedents. But I love The Descent. And fortunately, Jordan took up the task and is talking about The Descent with us. Okay.
3: Give me a smile. Gino, you know, are you sure we're going the right way? I've never been lost in my life. <laughs> oh.
5: There's
4: only one way out of this chamber, and that's down the pipe. I'm stuck! I can't breathe. Sarah, you have to calm down. I'm coming, I'm coming back. Okay? Okay. Uh Okay, move! Now!
0: So hopefully, Jordan, you like the movie and didn't just heed my advice and talk about it because I wanted to talk about it and The Keep.
5: Oh, I love The Descent. And that's it's funny. That's the reaction or like the collective consensus for audiences, especially like filmmaking, you know, filmmakers sort of audiences. We love The Descent. So I'm really glad yes. that, that you pointed that one out.
0: The Descent is a movie that I've uh, I've never I show it to people all the time and I've never shown it to someone that didn't love it. Mm-hmm. It's such it's it's such a fun horror movie. What is when was the first time you saw it?
5: I saw it when it came out in I guess it, North American. It was probably two thousand six. I want to say I was in mm-hmm. high school and I was with a friend who you know has like an encyclopedic sort of knowledge of films and uh, he was always seeking out those obscure films that I mentioned. And he said, hey, there's this film called The Descent. It's not playing at our local theater. We got to drive across town to this other theater. Uh, it's a horror film and it's about, you know, these, these cave divers, these sp- spelunkers. And, and that's all I knew about it. So I went in uh, pretty cold, which I think is the best way to experience the film.
0: I have to say, I completely agree because if you go in thinking it's just about these spelunkers, it's already kind of terrifying, right? They're in this dark cave there's there's it's wet it's extremely dangerous, and that alone is filled with jump scares and these like tense moments where someone's gonna get hurt uh but then the twist happens. we won't say what the twist is if uh for people who haven't seen it i can't if you haven't seen the descent, I can't believe it, please go immediately watch the the descent i think it's one of the best horror movies to come out in the last 20 years um without is, a doubt um, you know and that and that's tough to say because there's a lot of horror movies that have come out in the last 20 years when horror is almost the only genre that can make its money back in the movie theater
5: exactly um, and it's always on those you know top 10 lists, top 20 lists, best horror films of the past 20 years like you said it's always on that those lists because it covers so many different subgenres within the genre that is horror. You know, like you mentioned, psychological horror, uh, thriller, adventure. Um, and then yes, they about halfway through I wanna say it, it takes on this this next genre within you know, the, the genre that it has already encapsulated and executed so well.
0: Yeah. All of a sudden it turns into a horror movie. And 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 then it's just bonkers and, and, and crazy. And I have to say, one of the things that it does so well is, you know, I am I can be quite juvenile when it comes to uh, the horror movies that I that I like. And by that, I mean, The Descent lives up to being a horror movie. It is gory. It is extremely violent and gory. And if a horror movie can do that, well, I'm I'm all the way on board. And The Descent knocks it out of the park in that department.
5: It is definitely appropriate to program <laughs> it in the Bloodlust collection.
0: Right. Right. So what what exactly, how do you define b- Bloodlust? Well,
5: what's interesting about this collection, as you mentioned, uh, all the different films that are in it, it, it really spans the history of horror, right? You know, with Nosferatu all the way up to 2006 with The Descent. And for me, Bloodlust is, it's not just about gore. It's about... um you know, it's this this impending uh, doom or this desire where if there's a creature or a monster figure, it, it they, they've got to be bloodthirsty, <laughs> you know, they've got to have the bloodlust and that could be the actual characters or, or the creatures that the films are about, or it could be the directors themselves or the writers. Um, just the overall feeling of not shying away from the genre that is horror. I think uh, there are a lot of different horror films, like we mentioned, but something about bloodlust and something about, something about gore, like you mentioned, uh, what did you say, the little kid in you really likes? Yeah. That, yeah. it's. I mean, that's why a lot of folks like horror movies. It's sometimes films that have that sort of grindhouse appeal or that, you know, be horror movie where it's kind of gratuitous blood and violence. There's something enjoyable about that. And that's, why a lot of folks seek out these films. They want to be scared. They want to be shocked. They want to laugh or they want to jump. And I think The Descent definitely offers that.
0: I chose a uh, quite a different movie, I think, in the Bloodlust collection. Um, And for all of the juvenile in me, it's it's probably one with the least amount of blood, with the exception of Nosferatu, uh, I think. And that's um, Michael Mann's 1983 um, Failure The Keep.
2: This place was not built to keep anything out. This place was built to keep something.
1: You must not stay here.
2: Something has been released. Really something. Did you
3: find what you were looking for? Did you expect to find me? What
5: are you? Whatever kills us gets in anyway. Nothing we do, no security works. What's happening
0: to me? Um, and I don't say failure to 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 suggest people shouldn't watch it because if you like Michael Mann, it's all there. Everything that it makes his other films Heat Thief. Um, especially Manhunter, he's testing out a lot of those uh, st- cinematic styles, but in in a in a genre that's not his, and in a world that it doesn't feel like he has uh, he can really claim. And it's about a, a group of Nazis who are forced to turn to a Jewish historian for help in battling an ancient demon that they have accidentally freed <laughs> from like a Bavarian mountain and. Um, it's I I enjoy it mostly for the tangerine dream score that is extremely loud throughout the whole movie and then even when the movie isn't successful and its main its main places where it's not successful is that his first cut was like three hours long and the studio just took it away from him and cut it into ninety minutes and so narratively it, the story does not make that much sense but if you are a Michael Mann Completest, which I am, but had not seen this. Which I was so excited that Kira programmed it because it gave me a reason to sit down and, and, and watch it. Um, you get to see him as a filmmaker not successfully using all of these techniques that he would then successfully deploy um, in iconic ways uh, later, and even earlier with Thief. You know, some of that is is in Thief. Um, I really enjoyed watching this. Uh, uh, I, I kind of loved it, despite what even I think Michael Mann would would say about the movie himself.
5: (laughs) You know, I'm so excited that uh, we're talking about The Keep because like you, I actually haven't seen it. And I'm so excited to, and I am a huge Michael Mann fan. Right now we have Thief programmed in Neo-Noir. And Thief is, you know, one of my favorite films of all time, genuinely, you know, like top 10 films. Um, So I'm so excited to see The Keep. And from everything I've read and heard about it, your summation seems accurate. You know, these uh, things that Michael Mann has become known for as far as his style and his influences. I'm excited to see him experimenting with them a bit more in this uh, horror genre.
0: Yeah, there's a, um, you know, there are even specific things that you can see uh, the exact, him do the exact same thing in Manhunter and just the film after. Like, it seemed like he kind of was like, uh, okay, I learned these. I learned how to do these certain things and what I liked on the Keep, and now I'm going to put them in a genre that I I sort of know how to play in. And I, I read an inter I read something recently about the movie where at a uh, an interview or um, you know a talk that Michael Mann was at, someone asked him if there were any plans to get his hands on the original negatives of the Keep and cut make a director's cut of it, and he said. Uh, no, because they didn't really know how to do the special effects or the green screen at the time. And so that one, he said, is 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 lost to him. And, you know, there is so much beautiful stuff inside the keep. And then the monster appears out of the smoke. And you're like, what the hell? Like, how... Did you guys land on this for the monster? <laughs> this is crazy because everything surrounding the monster, the production design, the cinematography, the music is really beautiful and then the monster like feels like he ap- appears on a conveyor belt with like glowing orb red eyes that are like christmas lights or something and you're sort of like okay so you, this is where the where you guys really struggled in production. It, okay. But you know it's always-
5: interesting. Oh, keep going.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say, I always like watching someone that I consider a master filmmaker struggle because they still have brilliant ideas all the way around, and they're filled with incredible ideas. But somehow they just didn't congeal and 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 come together. And it's it's sort of inspiring to 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 watch that happen.
5: And I was just gonna say, it's interesting because Michael Mann, even in you know his most beloved film Heat, there are certain green screen scenes and shots in that, you know, when uh, De Niro sort of looking over his balcony, certain conversations yeah, yeah. <laughs> were shot in front of a green screen. And obviously that film is, is a masterpiece, but you look, you know, Michael Mann is such a forward thinking, innovative, progressive filmmaker that he takes these big swings. And um, yes. it's, it, it he's he, he doesn't strike me as a filmmaker who wants to go back and recut a film, you know, that seems to be, Coming more and more popular today with some of the, yeah. the filmmakers from his generation um, but he seems very much like someone to move on to the next thing and that's you know indicative of his whole career
0: but what's interesting about that is that he is also an experimenter and is known for shooting an insane amount of footage while on set and mm-hmm. for being Uh, While being particular, also wanting to see every angle and see everything through. And you can see that for like into his later films, when he starts getting into digital filmmaking, he clearly liked to use that because it just gave him chances to shoot it from more angles for shoot for longer periods of time, and to really kind of document the process versus having to plan everything so clearly beforehand. And one of the things that apparently happened with the keep was that he could never make up his mind as to how the monster would look. Mm. And so by the time that they ended up shooting it, it was kind of like a, okay, I guess we have to do this now. (laughs) Like like apparently the film went over budget because he just sort of refused to make up his mind as to like what, what the, the, the one monster, the key monster would look like in the movie. Mm.
5: Well yeah. w- without giving anything away like we said what do you think makes the descent such a well-made film
0: Well the descent a, a couple things I think the the one thing is that the the characters are are very well drawn for a horror movie and at the heart of the film you do have these these turns on the characters and the, these battles between uh the what's going on between the characters versus just fighting monsters or just trying to get out of a cave you know there is a there there is a dynamic at play between everybody that also has to play out and then i think everything seems to come together on that movie the 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 way that the cave is designed the way that the script the the way that the script follows them through the pitfalls uh, no pun intended. Within the cave, into what happens in in the twist of the movie. By the time the twist comes, you're so beaten into submission by how terrifying spelunking is that you'll that you know you'll you'll just ride it out.
5: Totally. And I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with uh, the idea of character and how well these characters are fleshed out. I read a little bit about it and. Uh, Neil Marshall, the writer-director, he took a really big swing in not only casting one woman as the lead, but six.
4: Right, like yeah.
5: this is this is pre Me Too movement, pre uh, you know progressiveness, especially in in you know Hollywood's always been progressive, but at this time where you know this is a low-budget uh, horror film from a director who is not American and decided to have the the plot revolve around these six women. And that was a tough sell for Hollywood. And the film was sort of released quietly, but then went on to become not only a critical success, but a really huge box office success as well. And I think it's all because it's rooted in character because otherwise, if we don't care about what's happening to these, um, you know, this group of friends in in this cave, then we're not gonna be scared. And that's where I think the execution is so well, because so many times today we see these horror films where they rely on jump scares or they rely on the gore or music. And the Descent has all of those things, you know, don't get me wrong. Like it is Neil Marshall knows it is a horror film with jump scares and, and gore and all of that, but it's so earned and so well executed and everything congeals, like you said.
0: Right. There's a sense of, at moments when a character is in peril, whether or not another character is going to save that character in peril because of things they know about each other from from what is developed in the movie, which becomes so much more terrifying than just them just trying to save them and like, you know, holding them by the arm over a cliff. It becomes while they're holding their arm, is she going to let her go because she hates her? You know, oh. like, it, it, which is... It adds another layer and dynamic to the to the movie that I don't think most other movies would have, and that's a great point about it being six women and how that has pro- probably been one of the main reasons it's the film has carried on for so long.
5: Yeah, and there's a lot of symbolism uh, along, you know, everything you just said with uh, what motivates the characters' decisions. Uh, obviously, it's a great script, but the way you know certain shots he used or set pieces. Um, You know, without giving anything away, there really is a lot to be said about the, the visual language that Neil Marshall uses in the film. Um, it's, it's, you know, hard to talk about it without getting into specifics, but you could look it up. We can't give it away. I know. I encourage, you know, folks to, to check it out and then just read up on it. You know, go down the, the internet, uh, rabbit hole with dissent because there are so many different ways to look at things. And with that said, there's actually, uh, two different endings. Did you know about this Ricky?
0: Yeah, I did. I did know that there, there, there's both of them are fairly bleak, but yeah. There's two different endings.
5: (laughs) There's two different endings. And again, without giving anything away, the uh, it's not, I don't even want to call it the original ending because Neil Marshall uh, said that he shot multiple endings. And so he was opening to, you know, depending on where it was being released uh, using one ending over the other. And you could argue that one is yeah, more bleak than the other. And you could probably guess which one had the more, hopeful ending
0: uh well jordan thank you so much for doing this taking the time and and picking a movie and for loving movies and being a part of the curia team
5: ricky thank you so much i just want to tie something up real quick here if i may
0: sure yeah
5: so like i said this film the descent was not playing at the you know the local megaplex and my friend who was very into films and obscure films or films that you know your average high school not even high school Uh, you know, individual, but just people in general wouldn't really seek out. Um, You know, we sought out this film, and and, uh, I went with this friend and another one, and he had just gotten his license, and so we drove out across town to a place we weren't too familiar with, and we go to this theater that we weren't familiar with, but it was packed, and uh, we go and we watch the descent and it devolves into this crazy horror movie. The audience is interacting with it and everyone's having a great time. And it's one of my favorite film experiences uh, that I could remember. And that friend who sought out this film was Garrett Weaver, who is uh, oh, wow. responsible for Curia here. So, this one, uh, enjoyable as it is, it kind of has a, a close place to my heart as well. And I'm just so proud of everything that. Uh, Garrett and the rest of the the team here at Curia is doing. What does it mean?
2: It means we're not the first. It's a pit home, right?
3: Well, if the cave is down here before, surely there's a better chance of us getting out. This equipment's at least 100 years old.
0: No one uses um, like said, all right. But... Right now, we're joined by uh, Lauren Clark from the Curia team. She's going to be discussing two October collections with me. That is uh, fables and fairy tales, and of course, the reoccurring uh, collection that varies in titles of the circuit. But first up, uh, Lauren, tell me to, tell me what it is um, you do uh, for the Curia team.
4: Yeah. Um... It's great to be here. Um, I do a bunch of different things with Curia. I work on acquisitions with EG, who I know you talk to. Um, also help out with marketing, digital strategy, writing copy. Um, now, you know, recently the podcast, which is super exciting.
0: We're talking about uh, Fables and Fairy Tales and the Circuit. And just to give a brief rundown for the listener of all the titles that are in October's Fables and Fairy Tales collection. We have... Um, 2018's Beast, 2011's Tales from the Golden Age, 2011's Sleeping Beauty, 2006's Hard Candy, 2004's Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, 2001's Amelie, 1981's Mephisto, 1949's A Canterbury Tale, 1948's The Red Shoes, 48's The Black Narcissus, and 47's I Know where i'm going those last four are all by powell and pressburger and uh incredibly beautiful movies neither of ours choice to speak about today but i will say of this collection that is an incredible uh four film series that, that that you could that you could do even outside of this collection but lauren you chose 2001's mm-hmm. amelie do you know what these people have in common This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well. So, tell me why is it uh you chose this movie? What sort of special significance does it have for you?
4: Yeah, you know it's interesting because especially watching it back, I thought that this might be the case, but especially watching it back for me, and I don't know this might sound a little out there, but it really like comments on and like sort of directly relates to what's happening on the internet right now mm. um I I see so much overlap with the way that Amelie sort of imagines and envisions like sort of herself and her life and this sort of like construction of selfhood um, as the way that people are also currently like interacting with social media. And so that was really fun for me to go back and watch. Another like favorite part of the film for me is, um, it's classified as a romantic comedy, right? But I don't know about you, but when I was watching it and Nino, like, so the main relationship character and Amelie at the end, when they come together, normally in a romantic comedy, that's really like, you get this sort of rush of endorphins because you're so excited about the two characters coming together. And I didn't feel that at the end, did you?
0: Um, I do I did not feel that uh at the end of the movie, but I was also upon rewatch like over far far too overly focused on the style of the movie and how um yeah. it feels spe- very specific to this moment in time and Janae's films in general feel that way, only because they seem that style seems to be adapted so quickly by advertising and marketing that like it's it had it had no time to exist solely as like an aesthetic in in movies it very quickly became you know within a year I feel like it was like a light bulb commercial
4: you mean the way that the film was shot you see in advertising
0: the way that it was shot the way that it was cut the way that it tells the stories like it's this sort of um I mean and they even reference Jules and Jim in in the film but it's this sort of like post new wave except the extremely accessible version of the way that uh Truffaut or Godard were using voiceover narration and using uh, yeah. jump cuts, um, and it's it's beautifully put together here. But you can just see it very quickly spun into like it just feels like a, a lot of marketing people and people in advertising saw this movie and they were like, "There it is, that's how we're gonna, you that's know, how we're gonna do this."
4: You know what's so funny is what stood out to me was like, and that this was sort of what I was trying to say about social media is that there are so many aspects of the film that i see in tiktok trends oh and in a in a way i don't think like what we're saying is too different because i think a lot of tiktok trends are sort of merging with the advertising and marketing world so it's i think all sort of one in the same but it's crazy right because this was a 2001 film um instagram wasn't even you know invented until 2010 and then tiktok 2016
0: right it's this idea that Jeanette Jeanette was like playing trying to play with the form as much as possible and as quickly as possible i mean one of the things about amelie is just how much information it gets across as as quickly as possible and i think that you see that in like tiktok because of the time because of the um uh lack of production that most people have that is the that that's the impetus behind it how fast can we get this information out what are the tools that i can use to convey it in a quick and funny way whereas it, yeah. Whereas it was experimental for Genet to do it in Amelie and Delicatessen. For TikTok, it's just practical.
4: Yeah. And even the um, sort of theme of like, like I, I remember watching it. The film is sort of, feels like more the imagination of Paris than Paris itself, oh, yeah. right? Like it's not trying to be, none. no part of Amelie is trying to be grounded in like any sense of reality. It's like meant to look like, you know, saturated and, like, you know, overly beautiful. And I do feel like TikTok and social media, in a way, it is similarly trying to be more like the imagination, the fantasy of the self, But you know, and, like, the, um, like, constructed identity of the self on, you know, online than it is any sort of, like, grounded reality, like, experience, I guess.
0: Right. And like you're saying, the idea that the... For a while in the movie, no one really exists outside of her projection on uh, onto them. Mm-hmm. Like everybody is a character in her world or in her investigation, yeah. which is also a very online lifestyle that I think we see yes. uh, manifest all the time.
4: Yes. And I'm so glad you said that because I, when I was thinking about why am I not excited for Nino and Amelie at the end, the way I am in every other rom-com. And I think that's it. I think that we don't ever actually get to know Nino. He's a projection, you know, of himself in her mind throughout the entire story. So we don't ever, like she never really talks and engages with him. So when they fall in love, it's like, she doesn't actually get the the real, in my mind, like the real experience of falling in love with this person because she doesn't know him. She only knows her idea of him. I also like, okay, I won't I won't go into all of it for time, but the end when they break the fourth wall, I just um, also really saw that sort of as commenting on what we've been saying about these, like, I think in the end, you know, is saying that like the, the, experience of of watching the thing of this sort of like second life, you know, or imagined fantasy life online on social media can't compare to, you know, the actual experience of it. And so when Amelie looks at this, sc- you know, she breaks the fourth wall twice, first her and Nino break in in this like fake clowny face, and then she breaks it by herself right at the end. And it's this like really sad lonely like quick flash of you know a second and it's how the film ends and I really do think that that's like the film's way of saying that like this idea of the thing this fantasy of the thing can't compare to the real experience like you can watch all the rom-coms you want and you know you'll get that endorphin rush at the end but it will never compare to the actual like you know lived experience of going out in the world and falling in love with someone and we're at this point in time where it's like if you're ever spending more time on like the fantasy version of your life or the imagined you know reality of your life like honestly you know so much of us do online and and on tiktok etc like it it can't it can't compare um but anyway i will i'll stop there because i could talk about it for forever
0: (laughs) i i love this read of the movie i i I'm so surprised. They just did not expect a read of Amelie like this to, to, to come out of this conversation.
4: I'm like about to go write a thesis. You
0: really are. You, you, you really are. My, uh, my pick uh, for Fables and Fairy Tales, because uh, I just hadn't seen it. And for this, um, for this collection, for whatever reason, I decided to go for what could have been a discovery. And that was 2018's Beast. I need to get home. Please don't do that. You're wounded. I can face that. Where were you? I was worried sick. I'm sorry. I'm
4: sorry for being selfish. In captivity. Some go insane.
1: There is speculation that the disappearance is connected to the unsolved murders of three other girls over the past four years.
0: you can't just change the rules because someone's shown an interest starring jesse buckley and johnny flynn too young and f- at the time that this was made extremely up-and-coming performers jesse buckley had yet to do the charlie kaufman film uh that that, that she did nor um the country music movie that she did both titles of which uh i i'm, I'm neglecting and johnny flynn hadn't really broken yet either and um it's a film about a um disturbed young woman who uh starts a relationship with a man that uh many people in her small provincial town think could be a a serial killer that's uh on the loose and the two of them are electric and fantastic together um the and and the movie's really great. It, it it didn't entirely come together for me, but I do uh, I do really like watching Jessie Buckley. I think she's an amazing actress that rightfully is mm. going to be uh, seen in, in in a lot of work for a long time.
4: No, absolutely not as
0: deep of a read as your take on *Humble*.
4: Well, I also hogged like all the time. My apologies, I like couldn't stop talking. No, right,
0: honestly, <laughs> rightfully so. It's a much better conversation than my take on on, on *Beast*. Our our next collection for October, which is a, a collection that you'll see every month uh, on the Curio platform. And uh, it's a rotating group of movies. Some come in, some come out, some stay, unlike the other collections, which are simply one month long. Uh, and it's the circuit. And it's a, it's a, a collection that's uh, made up of movies that played film festival circuits. And um, to go through it really fast, because it's a, a, a long list, there is uh, The Hero, Dior and I, Super Dark Times, Trophy, Beyond the Hills, Hannah Arendt, The Force, Barbara, Omar, Beanpole, Sorry We Missed You, Neon Bull, Tommaso, We the Animals, White Material, The Forgiveness of Blood, A Faithful Man, Tony Manero, Victoria, Muzio, Baccarau, and uh, Pasolini. And there's a number of these films that, that I could have chosen uh, that I love, but um, we'll get to my selection in a minute. Uh, Lauren, you chose Beanpole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Жизнь переходит на мирные рельсы. Работать будем много, как учит нас вождь. Воевали вместе. And I don't necessarily want to talk about it too much um, in juxtaposition to Amelie, but I feel like we have to because, yeah. <laughs> because they're just two wildly different um, depictions of um, a, a woman's experience. Um, and so, yeah. please, did had you seen Beanpole yet? Was it something that you wanted to be a discovery for yourself? What was your experience going into it?
4: Yeah, I hadn't seen it before, and Ichi specifically. I remember her telling me about it, and like everything about it, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I, I'm have to see this film because there is nothing like it." You know, sort of a character study of PTSD in two women, you know, and two young women is just um, very unique. And in like, I feel like the biggest thing that stood out to me in contrast, actually, to Amelie was. Amelie um, was was the most successful French foreign language film in the US, which makes a lot of sense to me in like the structure of the film. It's a very American film, you know, even though it's, it's set in Paris, it's all about, you know, the imagination and dreaming and the underdog, this sort of like Isolated like character who um, is able to like dream herself into a better life, and then Beanpole I think is so like wonderfully un-American, and I think is one of the best things about it because I don't think a film like this would exist or like would be made in Hollywood. It's so um, it it doesn't like it doesn't um go anywhere in terms of like the the characters don't overcome their obstacles you know um ia and masha are stuck in this like cyclical um plot journey where sort of the same thing happens over and over again which i think is sort of this beautiful like nod to what ptsd really is like um and in that sense also the film is so real, you know, it's so like, again, in contrast to Amelie Grounded and like the actual, like trying, you can tell that like the filmmakers are trying to get across like what it's actually like, or feels like, um, to experience PTSD. Um, and, and that's sort of, I think one of the best parts about the film and it comes across so clearly, almost painfully clearly. Um, like another, another thing that quickly stood out to me in the film was, you know, one thing that movies can do that no other medium can really do is make, force you to look at something, which is always like my least favorite part um, about watching a film is when they do those sort of long, like painstaking takes of something that you don't want to watch, which is obviously the point is like it it forces you to look at, like, I don't know, I don't want to spoil, but there's like a couple um traumatic moments in the mo- in the movie where a like, couple you just want it yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> i know there's there's um there's like those long shots um specifically the one with ian poshka um where you just want the to like freaking cut, and yeah, of course, it, and of course it doesn't. Um, which is sort of a point that it like makes you live in this um like really uncomfortable, tra- you know, traumatic moment. I'm I know I'm really selling this movie right now. Um, but well, but he, that's that's I- like you can't get. Oddly, yeah.
0: I think you know you were talking about Amelie and how Amelie was one of the most successful movies in the United States. Well, I don't think Beanpole is maybe the most successful like Russian film in the United States. It was, I I I, I think like a pretty big success in terms of a, a foreign movie playing in the states. Yeah. I remember in in New York it was playing at Film Forum for for months. People were really go- yeah. were going to see Beanpole and really cared about it. And I think that's not because the the devastating moments the traumatic moments of the movie are, are the only thing that makes it up it is also one of the most beautiful looking films i've ever seen the the, yeah. the color the color palette the cinematography the choice of shots the production design there is um well it's supposed to well it takes place in this in this period of time in in, in in Russia, there's, there's elements where it's like, that's a fresh paint job behind them in this room solely to make the colors pop a certain way. Yeah. And it's incredible to look at. So I, like I had trouble watching some of the, um, some of the more devastating moments. And I'm a person who um, was giddily laughing all the way through uh, Teton <laughs> t- the other night. So like, you know, I'm not really squeamish, yeah. but being pole is, is, it doesn't look away but then again there's something about it that is very satisfying in in the watch you don't feel like you're just being tortured for the sake of being tortured no
4: no and it totally um like i love that you brought up that it did for a foreign film do so well i think the timing of it is almost like so spot on because i do think a lot of the themes um and the way that it's presented sort of it does have this more like, you know, um, sort of new age, like feminine quality to it that I think and slash hope that like art and culture is embracing a little bit more um, in the United States than maybe it used to.
0: Yeah. Um, my choice for, uh, the circuit, um, is, um, I felt like we had to, you know, do him right one more time because he, he was so nice nice enough to come on the podcast uh, last month, and that's Abel Ferrara's Tommaso, who also has another movie uh, in the circuit, which is Pasolini, both of which star Willem Dafoe, and Tommaso is probably uh, Ferrara's most personal film I
3: left when uh,
1: I basically left, I wasn't there because I wasn't sober I'm sober now I don't want that to happen again acco una storia a hey, la mano
2: sì you're so busy you forget our woman
1: stai zitto hai sparlato di a figlia basta you know, I'm haunted a little bit by the fact that I get these paranoid thoughts. And you don't even help me with that
0: shit. You're a big problem. I need you. I need you guys. Shut up. It's about a filmmaker uh, living in Rome, like Ferrara does, uh, who um, has left a child behind in the states with an ex-wife, like Ferrara has, and it stars alongside Willem Dafoe playing a kind of Abel Ferrara's stand-in, um, Abel Ferrara's actual current wife and actual young daughter are playing the um, daughter and wife of uh, Defoe in the film. And like, like Abel, um, uh, Defoe is, a, is looking for redemption. He's looking for repentance. He's a sinner uh, for his past life. He's currently sober and he is uh, practicing Buddhist meditation, but he is struggling uh, very heavily with his own narcissism and his own need for uh redemption and his his self-destructive impulses. And um it is maybe one of the most personal films I think I've I've ever seen. I mean, if you know of Abel Ferrara and know his story at all, it's uh he he's putting all of himself on screen, uh, in the form of Willem Dafoe. And I believe they're putting a lot of Defoe on screen as well because the film even ends in a nod to um uh, Willem Dafoe's final scene in The Last Temptation of Christ. I mean, maybe it's not a nod to The Last Temptation of Christ because it's just a, a Christ story. <laughs> but and uh, but I don't think you can put Willem Dafoe on a cross and have him look at the camera and not think that that has something to do <laughs> with the end of The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, I've always loved Abel's films. Um, some come in and out of my life more. Um, but Tommaso reminded me of that period of time in my life where I was just very obsessed with who the artist was and how the, the work was built off of that, that, that artist's persona. Um, And I, you know, since I got a little older, I I don't think I've been that interested in interested in movies in that way so much anymore. Um, Also because sometimes that can lead to really icky conversations. (laughs) Um, But uh, with this one, uh, it just reminded me of that period of time where you cared so much about how personal the uh the, the filmmaker was being and you don't really get films that are even that are allowed to take those kinds of chances anymore. So I highly recommend Tommaso. Even if you don't know who Abel Ferrara is, I, I still recommend Tommaso.
4: I was curious if you noticed new things watching it having spoken to Abel.
0: Um well I you know Abel is still able. Um yeah. and there's and Defoe isn't really doing an impression of Abel um, in the movie. There's a much, the, the the there's there's like key elements of, of of Abel's story in it, but the way that Defoe is performing is he's performing like Defoe the leading man, not Defoe the character actor. Um, and I mean that in the sense that he's not like embodying a persona; he's playing him. He's he's he, he's bringing himself. To the screen so it doesn't necessarily feel like um defoe is doing you know it's it's not like uh you know the, they roll camera and defoe is like yeah you know i go out and i make a movie yeah. i live in a rome now he still sounds like willem willem defoe all, yes. all the way all the way through and he's not doing that kind of stream of conscious um uh talking storytelling um that 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 abel's does so much able such a raconteur and um defoes kind of more of a, a a silent listener uh and you know careful interjector which the character mo- is more of in 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 Tommaso.
4: Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. The sort of stream of consciousness. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> the what you could argue the movie has a little bit of that, but the 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 yeah. character not so much.
4: Which is, yeah, sort of a cool comparison. It's like in the spirit of the film, that's there, but not in his literal dialogue.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things that I that I love about the film so much too is that Abel for so long was such a New York filmmaker and his... Um, his movies, when you were talking about New York movies, it was, it was impossible to not talk about him because they existed so specifically in, in, in New York city, you know, just the way he used locations, the way his characters talked, the attitude, the way they talked about the city, you know, he was, you know, a New York filmmaker and Tommaso very much exists in Rome. Yes, it's about an exile living in Rome, but the streets, the people, everything you can, it's, it, you can feel the texture so specifically. And it goes to show you that like, he was a New York filmmaker before because he was living in New York, but now that he's living in Rome, he's a Roman filmmaker. He just, he's, he's observant and he can capture any place that he's living very well.
1: When you touch the fundamental nature, the ultimate reality of any phenomenon whatsoever, there is pleasure. Everything that exists is capable eliciting pleasure in your mind but you are narrow your mind has neurotic obsessions such as i only like things that are purple for you only purple things are beautiful this sort of neurotic dualistic unrealistic way of thinking only gets you into trouble but we do it all the time don't we
0: all right now we're talking to garrett weaver the chief content officer at curia and we're talking about uh the october collection moody blues uh, which is a collection of movies um about musicians sad musicians just musicians trying to work out their troubles work out their mood issues and we've got uh films like junction 48 band-aid born to be blue lennon company lucky them memphis black snake moan tender mercies the idol maker all night long paris blues and too late blues and now uh garrett uh where did the idea for this uh category come from how did you guys work it out and why did you choose black snake Mount? little
4: late White girl, the dirty blonde hair, split down the middle line.
5: Tell my Ray, girl
1: got an itch. She got that sickness, you know. What sickness? She goes crazy. Ricky, I think for this collection, you know, we we did have another music-driven collection called Beyond the Music that was more focused on music docs, um, some concert docs, and I always just thought, man, there's like all these really great movies about music that are narratives, you know, either music movies about musicians or movies that feature great music in stories about music or musicians. So it just felt like a fun subgenre. Um, to kind of play with. And I think black snake moan is one of the better, um, probably better representations of that sort of concept of moody blues. Um, and it's just a fun movie that, that I just kind of wanted to, to revisit and seen, um, since 2007. So, um, just a fun one that I wanted to kind of revisit and talk about.
0: And what did you think of it when you saw it in 2007?
1: You know, I I just remember immediately – so the funny thing is how how I saw the movie, um, I actually watched it on, if you remember, HD DVD, kind of a relic. So I remember in 2006 when HD DVD came out, there was like this format war, right? It was like HD DVD versus Blu-ray. And of course I chose the wrong one. I thought HD DVD was going to be the one. And I remember it was actually an add-on. To my uh, Xbox 360 at the time. So you actually needed like a hardware USB add on to play it. Um, And this was one that, like, when it came out, picked it up, super excited. Um, And it was way different than what I imagined. Because I think the, 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 if you look back at the marketing of the film, I think they marketed it a bit more as like this sort of erotic thriller. I don't really know. It was, not quite what it ended up being, which is actually kind of like a probably a little bit more of an elevated exploitation movie, which is kind of what Craig Brewer's were making, you know, throughout his career. So um, yeah, it was crazy though. It was like a, it, it is still crazy. I mean, it's the it's co- a like crazy movie itself. It, it's nuts. It's absolutely yes. nuts, and it shouldn't work. Like I feel like there's no reason why this movie should work if you think about it. I mean, you have like a character who's a nymphomaniac and another character who's this sort of religious zealot and he's supposed to cure her um, and talk about, you know, an odd couple kind of strange pairing of of these two characters um, in this sort of deep South blue setting, but he pulls it off somehow.
0: It's also very much a sophomore film, even though I don't think it's actually his second movie, but it's coming after Hustle and Flow, which was his first big success. It's very much like a second movie where it's like, okay, I've got less time to sort of figure everything out, but I've got even I've got every idea that I've ever wanted to put into a movie that I can put <laughs> yeah. into this, to this movie, and that makes it really I I think that's what's so fun about it because I think you said it shouldn't work, and I think if you go back and look at the reviews for some people, it didn't. But if you like movies that like to that like to walk a, a high wire, and you know whether they're successful or not, it's fun to watch them try to do that. And Black Snake Moan right from the beginning <laughs> gets on that high wire and you're kind of like I do not know if this is going to work or if it does work but you have to watch him try to try to make it work
1: well one like I think Hustle and Flow kind of coming before this obviously that kind of catapulting his career and probably could have done anything after that but chose to kind of do this um, crazy like exploitation movie but I actually think this movie has a bit more authenticity than hustle and flow in in the way it kind of represents the spirit of blues and kind of the tortured soul of, of this old blues man. Um, One, it opens up with a black key song, which is cool. Can't go wrong there. Um, And also just like Sam Jackson playing guitar, singing the blues in this movie. And like having like multiple set pieces where he's just like going for it. Um, I just, yeah, in terms of a movie that that kind of puts you in a certain mood, um, this is one where like even rewatching, I'm like, oh, I want to listen to Black Keys. I want to listen to Gary Clark. I want to like go, I want to go back into that world. Um, and, and it just does a good job, I think, of like, to your point, throwing the kitchen sink at you, but also doing it in a way where um, I think it's actually, even rewatching, it's, it's actually a pretty tight narrative though. It's not, it doesn't really like go too far astray and it keeps everything rooted in the characters um
0: yeah but what it has the characters doing it's 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 so crazy and you can easily see why it was an extremely divisive movie in oh, in, yeah. in, two, in 2007 that said i happen to like divisive movies and you know i'm happy to watch them whether i end up liking them or not fortunately i like black snake mode
1: <laughs> and i'm sure the studio executives were not thrilled to see a girl tied up in sam jackson's living room um,
0: that's the impetus for the movie. How, I mean, how could they not have known? That had to have been like, this is great. we're going this is how we can market mm-hmm. this. because, like you said, it's exploitation. and it looks like an exploit. It has the markings of an exploitation yeah. movie. But then it but then all of a sudden, it turns out to be this fairly religious, moralistic fable in 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 yes. some ways
1: and and you know, I think that's sometimes the problem with exploitation films is if they're too, I mean, sometimes they're too good they can feel too real. And if they feel too real, they make people feel uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. Almost like the more pulpy they are and the less like grounded in character or any like type of, you know, emotional representation of human beings that you relate to, I think it's going to be like easier to get away with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you kind of compare it to like something like, a like when Grindhouse came out, I remember that was like for a lot of people, the introduction to, exploitation it's just like so over the top right? um whereas this like there's a I don't know I think this is some this is a movie when you rewatch it like there's intention behind these two characters both Christina Ricci's character and Sam Jackson's character and that's what I appreciate it's like yeah it's crazy and yeah like I actually really actually like some of the um more sort of lyrical like fever dream moments and kind of some of the intercutting that he does with sam and christina's character even before they meet i thought it was actually really cool the way he sets it up um because you have this guy who's like you know sam's character who's um truly truly down on his luck and truly kind of a tortured soul and then this girl who's like kind of lost and dealing with her own demons and he's kind of intercutting these two characters out there at their lowest before they meet which is a really cool um intro and setup but no it's a super fun movie
0: yeah and it does like, you're, like you like you're saying it does a really good job of setting up why this sort of exploitational element ends up appearing in the movie and it ends up using it in a way that isn't exploitational mm-hmm. um I mean that's my opinion. I think one could very easily argue differently, but there's a lot of character work that's done before you even get to to that moment, and it moves like a bullet like all the character work is very mm-hmm. sharp and presented very very smartly and and, and quickly, which uh, is extremely hard to do.
1: It is. And it's also almost a two hour film. It doesn't really feel yeah long. It doesn't feel like bloated. And um, especially given it's actually pretty contained as well. You know, like it doesn't really leave that small town in that, in that sort of like contained world of, of the characters. So um, no, I recommend this one. This is one that people, if people haven't seen, um, like you said, it's definitely divisive, but it's one that um, if if you like movies about the blues, movies set in the South, movies with a little bit of an edge, um, this could be a good one.
0: My pick uh, for the Moody Blues section is uh, a far less risky movie, a uh, shorter movie, and that's uh, 1983's uh, Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall.
5: Were you really Max Sledge?
0: Yes, ma'am, I guess I
5: was.
0: (laughs) He was a star
1: who reached for the stars and fell.
4: All she remembers about you is a mean drunk trying to beat up her mama. You're dead as far as she's concerned.
1: He was a star who reached for life through his songs, but never let life reach him. When are you going to start singing again, sir? I'm not going to start singing again, son. I've lost it. He was a star who loved and was loved, yet never learned to love himself. I have a daughter. You do? She's seven, eight years older than your boy.
4: Where is she?
0: With her mama. Me and her mama are divorced.
4: Would you I all stop talking? That. I can't get sleep.
0: Um, This is uh, a really low budget, beautiful film about a down on his luck country singer, who uh, after a, a night of or maybe a life of being drunk ends up uh, staying at this motel in the middle of nowhere, Texas and uh, marrying the woman who owns the hotel and sort of finding redemption. Uh, it's directed by Bruce Beresford who went on to do driving with Miss Daisy. And I had only seen this movie once. And I, I, I used this as an opportunity to rewatch it because I loved it so much the first time I saw it. And it's something that kind of reminds me of like uh the best, the better. Kenneth, Lon- I mean, I like all of Kenneth Lonergan's work, but like you can count on me, or even like Manchester by the Sea, where it's just these really small, heartbreaking, tender, uh sensitive moments that could very easily veer into sentimentality, but there's a raw honesty that never allows them to do it. And then, in the in the final moments, without giving anything away, there is things that are learned there are the the people have changed, but they've changed very minutely. And that's just enough to have, uh, a a truth to it and an emotional reckoning that, that, that sort of sneaks up on you. The end of tender Murphy tender mercies is incredibly beautiful and it's something and unexpected yet something so small. And, uh, I think another movie just would not have the courage to do it. In another movie, I, I, we were saying this while we were watching it last night in another movie, he would have to become a country star once again, to save the gas station. Cause the bankers were going to close on it or something, you know, and that's not this movie. They, it, it's all internal conflict between these characters. Nothing external kind of comes in to, to force them to do anything. They're dealing with their own demons. Um, I love this film and it's got a, Duvall and a young Ellen Barkin in it as well. And the great Wilford Brimley makes an appearance also.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely a film that I think, you know, represents a lot of the types of films that we like to program stuff that, you know, I, I think this is definitely a movie where at its time, you know, underperforms, doesn't quite get the, maybe maybe hasn't quite um, been represented or, or shown as much over the years. It was nominated for a significant amount of Academy Awards at the time, so it's not like it's something that didn't have...
0: It won. Duv- Duval won Best Actor and Horton Foote exactly. won Best Writer. Exactly. Or yeah. Best Screenplay mm-hmm. for it. Um, and then it was nominated for Picture, Director, and Music.
1: And, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of these hidden gems. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we sometimes are surprised that... Um, how many of these films that have pedigree like that um are, aren't as widely available so definitely one we're proud to have and and uh you know to, to your point i fully agree i mean it's it's definitely a movie that um you know really connects and and has that sort of emotional resonance also like anytime you can watch robert duvall um in a lead in a movie is always it's always a good time
0: And it's such a great Duvall performance because he, with the exception of the Godfather is so explosive and, and, and big, which I love when he does it, but in tender mercies, his performance is really restrained and small. And he's, it's this idea that he's restraining all of those big emotions because they, they break him down and they hurt him. And, you know, there's a line at the end of the movie and it's the punchline to the movie that the whole thing is working towards. And when it lands, it's so it's so heartbreaking and it's shot from far away mm-hmm. rather than a close-up on him and it's such a emblematic moment of the entire movie that instead of punching in on a close-up for the punchline uh, line of the movie it stays fa- it stays far back where you can't even see that you can barely see the character's face um, yeah uh, it's it's a perfect tender mercies to me is an absolute perfect movie
1: and another another example of something I've always been fascinated with is uh, you know someone who's not an American Bruce Beresford being Australian shooting America and kind of you know southern America in this case Texas with an outside perspective and it kind of reminds me of like what I've always loved about movies like Paris Texas and someone like Vin Benders*, like the eye there's kind of this like the eye of somebody who's not from here presenting things that are so Americana Mm -hmm. in ways that um end up kind of I don't know really really capturing that americana in a really really unique way in a beautiful way especially visually
0: um well garrett i mean i i i think we got it i think that's uh i think that's this month's staff picks podcast That does it for this month's staff picks on You Had Me at Curia. I want to thank the team at Curia for selecting all these great movies, for uh, rewatching some, watching some of the first time so they could talk to me about them, for giving me the chance to rewatch them and watch some uh, new movies and talk to them about them. And if you've gotten this far in the podcast and you don't have the Curia app, that's um that's weird. It was a two hour podcast uh, about an app that you don't have, but that means that you are really interested and you should go download the app wherever you can. Apple TV, Roku, on your phone. Uh, give it a look and watch some of these uh, great films. Uh, to wrap things up, let's listen to some of the trailer for all of the movies on the Curio platform in October 2021. Thanks. Bye.
5: You are about to see Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. I do
1: hope you haven't come alone. You promised me entertainment, but I never hoped for this. And I aim to cure you for your wickedness.
2: The easiest thing for me to do would be to just
1: kill you. Don't forget, the great impression of simplicity can only be achieved by a great agony of body and spirit. <laughs> you want us to come down to the
4: basement? I'm scared.
2: I shall place the curse of suffering on you that
0: will doom you to a living
4: hell. Why do you want to live?
2: I don't know exactly why,
1: but uh, I must. <laughs>
5: You must admit that there are things that frighten us.